How long do you think a lame beggar would last sitting outside the gates of the Super Bowl? When the Super Bowl is played in your stadium, it becomes a temple, a temple for the gods of success, strength, and if there are cheerleaders, sex. So what does God do when a beggar is sitting outside the gate of his temple in Jerusalem, especially when the gate is called beautiful? For the answer, let's join our study leader, Dave Woodson, and our study of Acts chapter 3. Has anybody ever seen a beggar? A street person. What did the beggar do when they come up to you? Money, 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 money. How do you feel about the beggar? What do you do about the beggar? My son Josh was in the high school group. Uh, they took him down to Waco, and what we did is they take him in, and they take away all their regular clothes, take him to Salvation Army, and have them dress up with Salvation Army clothes, and then they go out, and they do have some supervision. They're safe, relatively, and they hang out on the streets of Waco for a couple days. And the idea is that we want people to learn to be responsive and to see needs around them. And the fact is, I talked about beggar and I mentioned street person, a whole bunch of you have already decided, you know, well, I just ignore them because they're all a bunch of cheaters and they're rooking you and they deserve what they got and I've worked hard for what I got. Most of you wouldn't be that brash about it, but that's what you think, you just turn away. One of the things that Josh came back and told me is that he was going to be a street person and that he realized that this was a really awesome way to live. You could live in a bunch of cities. You could just go with the temperature. But to be serious, one of the things the Lord did in Josh's life for real is that Josh never goes by a street person, and he doesn't just give them money. In fact, often he doesn't give them money, but he talks to them because one of the things he learned in the streets of Waco is that when you're a beggar, nobody looks at you. Nobody talks to you. Nobody sees you as a person. And so Josh always makes sure, and he'll often take a street person to go and get a cup of coffee, and that's why, like, tomorrow, Josh in Maynard, Texas, will be working in an underprivileged high school because the Lord generated a burden in his heart that we need to start when they're just in high school and, and kids that don't have any resources and kids that don't have any help at home, maybe we can try to build into their lives. And so it, the Lord totally changed his viewpoint towards beggars. I want to ask you, how do you think a beggar would have done in front of Cowboy Stadium? Can you imagine a beggar somehow working it out from Fort Worth and they go and they plant themselves right at the main gate of the Super Bowl? How long do you think a beggar would last at the gate of the Super Bowl. The police in the group are saying, no, man, in five seconds, man, they're going to be hustled away because the Super Bowl, when you paid hundreds of dollars to get a seat to go to the Super Bowl, the last thing in the world you want to be confronted with is weakness and somebody holding their hand out for a handout because as you walk into the Super Bowl, it's a temple to strength. It's not a temple, it's not a temple to people that are crippled. Nobody on either the Packers or the Steelers that played in that game were crippled because those are the strongest legs in the world, and that's what we're there to celebrate. And that's very deep inside of all of us. We worship that. We believe in that. The second thing we're there to celebrate is power and success. 
And if the teams had cheerleaders, which this year they didn't, we can even worship sexuality, and that's all that's going on. In other words, the temple of the Super Bowl, you need to understand, is going to get rid of beggars because they remind us of the weakness and no power, no strength. And one of the things we're going to do is push that away. And some of the ways that we do that is we come up with explanations about why a beggar deserves to be a beggar. Now, the question we want to raise today is, what does Jesus do with beggars before his, not his stadium, but what does he do before his temple? In the first century, the Jerusalem temple was the, the beautiful place where people were, were to be reminded that there's an ultimate God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a God of creation. And he, in this temple, has come to dwell among his people. That was the idea of the Jewish temple. The Jewish temple was made after the pattern of God's house in heaven. And the whole idea of having this building on earth, and this was a legitimate temple, when Jesus set up a new temple, it became your body. But in the first century, and we're in a big transition time in the book of Acts, the earthly Jewish temple was supposed to be the place that reminded you, this is the place you connect with the great I am. This is the place where you get close to God. This is the place where you can, you can be with other people that are praising and worshiping God. So what our text does today is we, it raises the issue, what does God do when a beggar sets up camp for year after year in front of his temple? In front of, and it even calls the gate where he is beautiful. Now here's the catch. We're going to have a beggar outside the gate beautiful. Inside already are murderers. So it's a really intriguing story we have today in the book of Acts because we've got a beggar that's begging and asking for a handout outside of the beautiful gate. It's going to tell us that twice. We've got those that have entered through the beautiful gate. They are in the place where God is connecting with his people, only they're murderers. What's God going to do with them? Turn to Acts chapter 3, and let's find out the answer. And we begin in Acts chapter 3, and so as you're studying, one of the things I want to do is equip you for studying this book on your own, because there's no way in the little time, I know I do teach a long time, but there's no way on any given Sunday morning that I can really help you to, I, I can't just teach you all that the Spirit of God wants to teach you in this text. What I can do is give you some keys, and one of the things I want you to understand is that when we studied Acts chapter 2, we had Pentecost happen. A tremendous miracle took place. A bunch of 120 people began to speak languages from all over the Jewish dispersion, all over the world. It was an incredible miracle. It attracted a ton of attention. When you got 120 people speaking Elamite and Akkadian and speaking Greek and speaking Latin and all kinds of different languages from all over the ancient world, it makes a big noise. And as they spill out into the temple area, people come and they began to gather and then Peter preaches to them. Luke uses that as his structure. Today, we're going to have another miracle, and it has to do with a beggar at the gate. And we're going to have Peter and John. Peter's going to take the lead, and we're going to once again have this structure where an incredible supernatural miracle takes place. It gathers a crowd, and then that opens us up to be able to hear what's the explanation of the miracle. 
What is God really doing? So let's look first of all at the beggar that learned to dance. Look at chapter 3, verses 1, and it goes all the way through verse 10. And the structure here is this is the the miracle healing of a beggar. And he goes from years and years of being crippled, having weak ankles and weak feet and paralyzed, to being able to dance. One day, Peter and John, they were going up to the temple at the time of prayers at three in the afternoon. Dr. Luke sets the setting, and what he wants you to understand, a lot of you would know this, but there's no Christian church at this time. There's only Jews. So we're not talking about religion here. This is all Jewish. You need to understand that if you're really going to understand what God really wants to talk to you about. Because you live in a world that wants to say, well, Muslims do their thing, Jews do their thing, Christians do their thing. I want you to know if you're really going to understand what God is doing, you need to listen to what God is saying through his holy word. I've got good Jewish men. If you're Jewish in the first century, you go to pray just like Muslim people pray five times a day. My Muslim friends are committed. If they're good Muslims, they pray five times a day. If you're a good Jew in the first century, you pray three times a day. You're not quite as holy as the Muslims, I guess. In fact, Daniel, years before this, mirrors the same thing. He prays in the morning and in the noon and then in the evening. He prays just exactly like the Jews are doing in the first century. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's when the daily sacrifice was offered, and it became a time of prayer. You can read about that in Josephus. So these are good Jewish men going into a totally Jewish temple, Gentiles are invited to come into the first court to join the Jews in praying to the Lord. So that's what's taking place. It says, now there was a man crippled from birth. So he is hopeless. That's the idea. And he's being carried. So he's got some precious friends, just like some of you. This week, some of you have cared for your friends, and you visit in rest homes, and you go and visit in the hospital. Some of you have cared for people like this. They're crippled. They can't walk, and you push their wheelchair This man has friends just like that every single day. And I don't know whether they bring him to the first hour of prayer and then just drop him and let him beg all day long or whether they bring him to the first hour of prayer as everyone's coming in and then he begs with them leaving and then they give him some reprieve and then they bring him back. I don't know. You can ask him someday when we go to be with him in heaven because he really does come to know the saving power of Jesus. It says where they put him every single day to beg from those going to the temple courts. So you've got the scene. Here's a beggar. He's outside the gate of the Jewish temple. Peter and John come along, about to enter. So they're going to pray. And he asks them for money. So you've got the scene. So we can ask the question, we've got a street person, the equivalent, and he's a crippled street person, and he's handing, and he's asking for a handout. Now, what did did Jesus' first century apostles do when a beggar is asking them for money? What does he do? Well, look what it says. It says, first of all, it says that Peter looked straight at him, as did John. The very first thing I learned from this text is what I just shared with my son, Josh. My personality, because I was raised in New York where there were a ton of street people, and I was taught from the time I was very little, just ignore them. I don't look at them. In fact, my tendency is I don't want to look at a lot of things that aren't good. 
Like, I don't like to look at cripples. Like, I really like to look at Packers and Steelers, and I love to watch them run. That makes me feel strong. Some of you haven't been to the hospital in years. And the reason you don't want to go to the hospital is because it reminds you of weakness, and you're scared to death that it's going to happen to you. And if you're strong and healthy, especially when you're young, you don't want to go near those that are weak. One of the things that the Spirit of God is going to work in this church family to do, every single one of you, is you learn not to run away from crippled, paralyzed legs. It's, and I want to tell you something. Living a little bit longer now, it's not going to keep sickness away from you to ignore it. Like when my first grandchild comes, Blythe can't talk to you. She walks funny. In fact, if she were here today, she would have to walk all around the back of the church because she has Rett syndrome. It's not going to keep any of you moms from having a special needs child to ignore them. And I'm not saying that you do. One of the really great things that shows me the evidence of the Spirit in this church is we have a lot of special needs kids. In fact, we're becoming a place where you bring special needs kids. Because you don't ignore them. A lot of you have been, you've said, man, I'll go and take care of them. Some of you, that's become your ministry. What you're doing, what I want you to see is that you you say, where does that come from? What causes me not to turn away? It's the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit that worked in Peter and John's heart that caused them not to just walk by a beggar. They looked at him. They looked at him. It's the very first thing I learned from this text. One of the things I need to learn to do, and you need to pray for me in this. Like, I need to learn to look at people that has needs. Like, this week, in, in, in the, with, with doing some things with a, someone that had a family that just lost their loved ones, I was exposed to a whole lot of people that don't come to church all the time. It's not what they do. And they also were very turned off about church, to be honest with you. They were turned off about preaching and everything else. Well, I have a ton of things. Like, that's what I do. I've done it a long time. It's, it's hard when someone says, now, don't pray. Don't read any scripture. Don't do anything religious. How do I respond to that? It's really easy to say, man, I got to get out of here. I'll never forget years ago when a dear teenager girl crashed on 287 and got killed, and I went to visit her dad, and her dad said, just get out of here. I don't want to have anything to do with you, preacher. It's easy to say, man, I don't want to have anything to do with you either. One thing the Lord is teaching me to do is look. Look intently at them. Be in a room and watch people and then look for the person that the Holy Spirit can lead you to that, that needs you. Don't walk in a room and just think about how they're responding to you and what they're thinking about you and whether they like you. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes so that we actually start to see what's going around. And I love it because Peter fixes his eyes and it says John joins them and they look right at this guy. And man, this guy, man, he is anticipating. When you're a beggar, if you've ever done this, it's just like when you get someone's attention, man, you've got it. Man, you leap inside and go, man, this is going to be great. This is the softy. They're going to give me a big handout. Look what Peter says. I just love this. I've loved it from the time of a little boy. Peter looks straight at him and says, look at us. And so the guy's saying, man, for sure, this guy's going to give me a big thing. And then he starts out. He says, silver and gold, I don't have. Now, that blows my mind. Silver and gold, I don't have. 
That killed me. I can just feel the beggar. What about you? How many of you have incredible resources and you're able to meet needs? Like when people have needs, you can respond to them. But to be really honest with you as an American, we've been in a downturn. And my response to a downturn is, we don't have power anymore. How can we ever meet any needs? Because as Americans, what we really do well is money. And we can throw money at everything. And one of the things that this text says to me is, you know what? We're at the beginning stage of the most powerful movement that ever hit planet Earth. And the guys are starting out, and they say to me as an American, silver and gold I don't have. And as an American, I would say, well, then forget it. Let's move on to another movement. I need to get with the power people that have money, because if we're getting anything done, it's got to be with the big, powerful. The Book of Acts is going to teach us there's nothing wrong with money. Later on in the Book of Acts, we're going to have a man who does have land named Barnabas that sells it and meets needs. The Bible is not anti-money at all, but it is anti the dependence upon money. Because you're not going to meet anybody's needs just with your silver and gold. In fact, one of the worst things you can do to a beggar is just give him silver and gold. In fact, that's why I ignored him a lot as a teenager in New York, because most of the guys, if I gave them a dollar, they would wait till they got three or four dollars, and then they went and got a, got a beer. They got whiskey. That's why my dad taught me, don't give them money. In fact, I needed to make sure I had the time that if I was going to meet their need, that I took them to get something in their stomach. And you've all learned that. Because one of the worst things you can do is just keep piling money when that's really not what they need. So Peter and John remind us, it's not just about money to meet people's needs. Then they say this. You say, well, David, money doesn't meet the need, then what does? It's what almost every one of you in this room have. Look what it says. Silver and gold have I none. But what I have to you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth he is the, the Jesus that was a human being that has now become the exalted Christ that's connected with his birth in Bethlehem, his child raising in Nazareth, the one that came just to walk among everyday normal people. That's all that's involved in Jesus the Messiah of Nazareth. Taking him by the right hand, Peter helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and he began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who had sat begging day after day in the temple gate, which was called beautiful. Now he's inside. Now he's in the worship of God, the place where you can get close to God. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. It gets a crowd when you got a guy for year after year after year, he's been crippled, and you've been walking by him, and suddenly the guy is praising God and yelling and shouting. And those of you who are from an Assembly of God background, this is the beginning of your movement. This is where it came from. When God's Holy Spirit really works in your life, you need to learn to leap a little bit. You need to learn to be excited a little bit. Jeff Thompson was down here visiting on a Wednesday, and I got Mary got to hear him. Jeff jumps for joy. He leaps for joy. One of the things of the Bible church is you leap inside. You are scared to death to leap on the outside. Tremendous things can be happening. Some of that is just cultural. I don't want to put a big guilt trip on you. If I speak to a bunch of African-American men, they would have already started leaping. They would have already been talking to me, some of them. But what I want you to understand is that we want to, we want to really respond when God works miracles on our midst. And in the first century, 
Jesus, the point of this is Jesus is showing his ultimate kingdom is not going to be a place of cripples. And what he does, he, remember he said in chapter 1, I'm going to ascend to heaven, and then the times of refreshing will come when it's my Father's time, and the angels say the same Jesus that was taken up from you into heaven is going to come back. When Peter spoke at Pentecost, he told them, you need to repent. You need to respond, because if you'll respond to the Messiah... These days are for you. The Spirit of God is poured out now. This is evidence that we've begun the time of the end. We've been living in that time of the end for the last 2,000 years, and we're supposed to be the lights. We're supposed to be the ones that are experiencing this kingdom joy, this kingdom power. And it doesn't mean that God heals all the cripples in the world right now. In fact, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to find out that God doesn't just remove cripples. He doesn't just remove all the lame. He doesn't just remove all the blind. Because if he did, that's the kingdom. And all the choices are over. We're in the eternal kingdom then. So you say, well, what's going on right now? God is giving us glimpses. Like in our church families, I think of all the years of ministry. Sometimes I pray, and I'm with the elders, and we pray, and we ask the Spirit of God to really work, and somebody leaps for joy. They really are healed. Not just because we had a big healing meeting, and we got the music playing just right, and then we cranked up the spirit so that people emotionally, and I'm not saying that God never worked in those settings, but I want you to understand the difference between real, powerful, apostolic, spirit-filled ministry and just con artists. Because I'm raised in New York, I was exposed to a ton of con artists. The early apostles didn't have meetings for healing. They just walked. They just were going to the temple to pray. They saw a beggar. So it would be the equivalent of, a, I go to the intensive care ward this afternoon at Charlton, and I go and pray for people, and they're all healed. That's what the apostles were able to do. What was Jesus doing in the first century? He was saying, these are my apostles. They're giving you the revelation. They are proving that this is the truth. Down through the centuries, I believe that God continues to give glimpses into his kingdom. And sometimes he powerfully works. And I don't want to be a Bible church that believes that God only powerfully, miraculously worked in the first century. Because if you'll just travel around the world, you'll find out that God's spirit is still powerfully doing miracles. Especially when he's breaking into dark territory that never has heard the gospel. One of the things that grieves me too is it's very possible the American church is like Capernaum. I couldn't do many miracles in your work because you don't believe. You don't trust me. And it doesn't mean that you conjure it up, but it says you need to believe in Jesus. But I also want you to see, as we move into the second part, the greater miracle takes place in the next part of Acts. In the next section, because they go into the temple, this guy is yelling and screaming. If a guy that was crippled that was outside the gate suddenly comes into this church, and man, he's yelling and screaming. If he yelled and screamed loud enough, we could gather a crowd from all over Midlothian. And that's what's happened. So what does Peter do? Now we have, remember I told you, Dr. Luke described a very powerful miracle. In this case, it's a cripple that's been crippled from birth that now is leaping and praising God. Now Peter's going to talk to the crowd and he talk to us. And amazingly, the real cripples are not outside the gate. According to Dr. Luke, they're inside the gate. That the tragedy is most of them think they're just fine. They're walking just fine. 
In fact, the cripple, like when you go by the panhandler, almost all of you say, well, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that. I worked hard. I went to school. I went to college. I work hard every day. If that guy would just get his act together, he'd be okay. Boy, am I glad that I've got my act together. You ever feel like that? Some of you have preached like that around your table, drinking coffee and a carol. All the suffering in the world would go away if people would just get their act together. You just need to work really, really hard. That'll work really, really well until you're paralyzed. And if you're talking like that, which I can easily do, saying all the suffering in the world is totally legitimate because it's justice. They deserved it. The real murderers were the ones that walked by the beggar every single day and did absolutely nothing. And they're inside the gate. They're the religious. Like unbelieving friends of mine, the big thing they tell me, I heard it this week, the whole last part of the week. The reason I haven't been in church in years and years and years is all those people there are a bunch of hypocrites. You know what? A lot of them, are. that's exactly right. Because we're inside saying, oh, I'm all right. And we have all of our viewpoints. We don't see beggars. We think we're doing really well and we're blessed because we're such good people. So look what happens. Peter's going to expose all that. All the Jews are in there worshiping. A crowd gathered says, while the beggar held on to Peter, you don't let go of somebody that heals you. So all the people were astonished and they came running to them in Solomon's colony. This is a beautiful part in the temple. It's probably on the eastern side. It's about 50 feet long. It has 35-foot columns that are all made out of marble. Those of you that are carpenters, they use cedar uh, roofing to kind of cover up the place. So it's a really neat place to gather as a crowd. And uh, there would be rabbis that would be teaching there. Jesus spoke in the colonnade of Solomon. It says, when Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel. So he's going to, just like a rabbi, now he's going to talk to them. Remember, they're all Israelites. Why does this surprise you? I love Peter. And I say, well, Peter, of course, wouldn't you be surprised? The guy's crippled. But I want you to see the way Peter thinks. Says, why does this surprise you? Why do you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power and godliness we have made this man walk? This is very important. I can protect you. Please listen to me. You don't need to believe anything I say, but please watch out for someone that says, look at me. Peter did say, look at me, and then he healed the person, but he said, look at me, and then he said, in the name of Jesus. And every one of you throughout your whole life need to be really careful. We don't look at Peter and John. And Peter and John, those that really know Jesus are the quickest in the world to say, why are you surprised? And why are you thinking? Some of you say, man, I want to go where the guy's really powerful. I want to go where the guy really has godliness. And what we do, this is happening around the world. I can show you my brothers and sisters in Africa. They are living in total poverty, but they will go and join a church like this, and they'll listen to someone that's really powerful. And he lives in beautiful homes. He wears beautiful clothes. He drives incredible cars because he's powerful. And what he tells them is, I'm more godly and I'm pious. In fact, some of you have the idea, man, if I just could become godly enough, if I could just become skilled enough, then I'd have the power of God. And the reason we don't have the power of God is we just aren't godly enough. And so if I really can find someone that's really godly, then God's power will work. Watch out for that thinking. Peter and John, the original apostles, says, hey, this cripple wasn't healed because I have prayed so long for the last 20 years that I am now a super monk. 
I'm one of the, the marathoners when it comes to spirituality. And if you'll only learn to spiritually run like me, you'll be able to do miracles like this too. There's no grace in that. Peter and John say, it's not my power. It's not my godliness. And I want us to realize as a church family, it's not any of our power. It's none of our ability. It's only Jesus. And you will be so protected from false teaching. You'll be so protected. If you'll get into this, as soon as you start to hear someone teach, you'll go, he's connected with Jesus. She's connected with Jesus. And they're into God's word, and I'm hearing truth. But you'll also realize they're not into Jesus. They're into themselves. It's about them. It's about what they're doing. And instantaneously, no, man, I don't have the true spirit who's always pointing the, the beautiful spotlight, all the lights on Jesus. Peter says, why are you surprised? It's not because of our godliness. It's not because of our power. He points them to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. Man, this is a Jewish audience. He's going right back to the Pentateuch. This is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's the one that had glorified Jesus. When, he's, like, to, when I say that to you, nothing happens very much. You go, yeah, sure, so. Because you believe Jesus is the glorified one. But I want you to realize that when Peter was in the temple and he started to talk like that, this crowd, a little bit more than 50 days before, had decided that Jesus is a criminal. He is a heretic. He is taking us away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was the big choice in the first century. You need to understand that. You don't have nice religion saying, hey, we're Jewish. We think Jesus was a great teacher, and he was a sweet rabbi, and he just had a little disagreement with the Second Temple leadership. And that's why there became the Christian church, because they followed the rabbi Jesus. And we love the rabbi Jesus. He's such a great ethical teacher. And now we have Judaism, and you can follow Judaism, and you can follow the law of Moses. I want you to realize that Dr. Luke in the book of Acts is saying, you forget it. That's not reality. And you live in a world where you're going to hear that constantly. You're going to hear that all the time in the public media. You hear it in the university. And all I'm asking you to do, you need to think really hard what Peter's saying in this. Peter is a Jewish man that's saying, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did he think about Jesus? I want to ask you, what do you think the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob thinks about Jesus? And Peter's going to tell you. Peter says, God glorified him. And this morning, every one of you, you either say, that's my Jesus. And boy, when I hear Peter saying, he's to be praised. I want to sing to him. I'm going to live my life to him because he is the Messiah. He is the son of God. He is God's child. Peter uses the Greek word pais, which means he's God's incredible servant, but it's like he's his tender child. And you're going to respond to him. Or you're going to say, what the next part of Peter, what does he say? He says, God glorified Jesus. What did most of his audience do? Look what it says. It says in chapter 3, it says, you handed him over to be killed. Now, just stop and think of what this was like in the first century. Peter looks at the crowd and says, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned before Pilate. You denied before Pilate when Pilate had decided to let him go. You denied him. The, word, the same words used there again. You disowned him is what the NIV did. Remember, the guy that's speaking this is the one that denied the Lord three times. And now he's telling the crowd that denied the Lord before Pilate, you denied him. 
And he asked, you asked that a murder be released to you. You killed the author of life. That's a bad scene. What would you do with people? What do you think should be done with people? Jesus is a totally innocent man. Never done anything wrong in his life. Even his enemies can't find anything wrong with him. They hand him over to the Roman authorities and say, kill him. Pilate is a screwbally, political, Roman, callous leader. The Roman soldiers brought their flag and everything into the temple, and when the Jews had insurrection against it, he blew them away, just like the political leaders of the Middle East that are trying to hold on to their power. Pilate is not a good man, but he decided Jesus is innocent. His wife, remember, had a bad dream. Don't do anything with this guy. What do you think should happen to guys that have said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him? What do you think should happen to them? What do you think the holy, righteous God of the universe? They not only did this to a Jewish rabbi, who was Jesus realized? Do you realize that every single one of you are alive today because of Jesus? He's the originator. He's the author. He's the creator of life. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. All things were created by him. In him was light. And the light was the life of men. Do you realize what happened when Jesus was crucified? We as human beings. The one that God said would bring blessings to the world. The one that God said would be born in Bethlehem, would heal the sick, would raise the dead, would heal blind eyes, lame men, make cripples sing and dance. We killed him. That's what Peter is saying. And I want you to understand that Peter is not just saying that Jewish people killed him. Because the Christians like us, cultural Christians, said we would never do that. We're not the ones that would do that. So they ended up in the Middle Ages killing Jews. It led to Auschwitz. So the last thing I want to do today is for any of you to feel like, let's get the Jews because they killed Jesus. What I want you to understand is I killed Jesus. And until every one of you are ready to face that there's an evil inside of you, you know what makes you walk by beggars? Evil. Really impenetrable, dark evil. You guys hand over innocent people. I do. We crucify the author of life every time we ignore him and we disobey him and we pretend like he isn't who he is. That's what Peter wants us to realize today. What he wants us to realize, we are murderers, every one of us. That's why Jesus, the one that was crucified that day, Jesus said, how many of you have ever said, you're an idiot? Anybody ever said that this week? When you're a little kid, and then you say, I, mean, I could kill you. Did anybody teach you to do that? How many of you have gotten so angry deep in your soul and said, I'm going to get that person? Anybody done that? Where does that come from? Like we watched the streets of Egypt this week. And man, I was praying like crazy. Oh, dear Lord, help violence not to break forth. And I celebrated because man is made in the image of God. So I rejoiced when for the first time Egyptians were free. I rejoiced in that. But there was a CBS reporter in the middle of that celebration. Suddenly 200 men su surrounded her. And then they beat her up and they raped her. 
Why did that happen? In Bahrain, peaceful crowds are celebrating like the Egyptians when suddenly riot police come in and bullets start mowing down people. It's not over yet. You see, you live in a world that says, if we can only convince people you need to be free, it'll be in your best interest to be free, let us educate you, let us teach you, we can help to meet your material needs, we can set you free, then the problem of violence will go away. One of the biggest issues in the 21st century is, what about murder? And I got news for you. Murder is still with us. And I want to tell you something. The Apostle Peter is saying, all the education in the world isn't going to make murder go away. And you can fan the flames deep inside of Egyptians, Americans, Bahrainis. And you can say, it's going to be a new day. And you can sing beautiful songs. And suddenly, this violent, evil thing, you can say, well, it's our beastly nature from our evolutionary past. If we can only progress a little bit further, the beastly nature will go away. The apostle Peter is saying, no, it won't. And I want every one of you to understand, this is so important. You're not going to deal with the problem of your murder, the problem of your evil, by your own effort. These were Jewish religious people. They were praying. They were giving alms. They thought they were the holiest people on earth. And to show you how bad it is, they crucified the author of life. And until you're ready to understand, that's me, then you don't understand what the great, incredible, loving, compassionate God really wants to do. What would you expect the message to go on and do? I would expect God to say, the fires of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that, that brought the floodwaters in Genesis chapter 6, to deal with the violence against my son, I'm going to eliminate all these people. And that's not what Peter said. Peter said it was all within God's plan. This was the redemptive plan from the beginning. He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witness of this, and by faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name, and it's faith that comes through him that has given us this complete healing in him, as you can see. So Jesus is the source of this incredible power that sets cripples free. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. It doesn't mean that you're innocent. Ask the policeman and the judges in the room. If you're ignorant of the law, it doesn't mean, I'm sorry, I didn't know I was going 65 and a 50. How many of you have ever tried that on a state trooper? What does the state trooper say? Ignorance of the law doesn't mean that you're innocent, but it does open the possibility that you might get forgiven. And that's what Peter's doing. He's saying, you really didn't understand. And the incredible mercy of God is going to give you a chance. Look what it says. But God did this and he fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets saying that his Messiah, his Messiah would suffer. He would die on the cross. In other words, you need to turn around. You need to turn away from your sin. You need to grieve over your murderous violence. You need to grieve over your rejection of God's son. You need to turn around and you need to turn towards God so your sins may be wiped away, that they might be wiped out. And then the times of refreshing, that ultimate time when Jesus is going to set up his kingdom on earth will take place. And then he will send his Messiah 
who has been appointed for you. This is a Jewish Messiah. Jesus has been appointed for them. He's going to remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God, this is Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses predicted the Lord your God is going to raise up a great prophet. He's going to be like me from among the Jewish people. You are to listen to him. He's to, you're to listen to everything that he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many of them have spoken, have predicted or foretold these days. You are now heirs of the prophets. You're now heirs of the covenants God made with your father Abraham. And he said to Abraham, through your seed, the word offspring is through your seed, all the people on the earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, that's Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you, turning each one of you from your wicked way. What is Peter saying here? To a Jewish audience, you know what he just said? He said, you know the Pentateuch really well, Deuteronomy 18. Why should you believe in Jesus? Because Moses, in Deuteronomy, before he died and went home to the great I am, he said, God's going to send a great prophet. Peter is saying, Jesus is the prophet. It's what I've taught you. It's why I've devoted my life, and I want to do it more and more. I want you to understand that Genesis 3.15 says there's going to be a great conflict between the seed of the woman, between the seed of the serpent, and the Lord is going to ultimately send his great male child that's built up and preserved through Noah's family. And then Abraham is told, through your seed, all the family on the earth. And Peter quotes not from Genesis 12, but in this context, he quotes from Genesis 22, which is right after Abraham almost offered the promised child. And right after Abraham almost offered Isaac in Genesis 22, God stops his hand, doesn't let him slay Isaac. And then he says, Abraham, because you've done this thing, I'm going to bless all the world through your seed. And what Peter was driving home to that audience that day is now the son, the ultimate seed has come. He's saying your murderous evil murdered him and put him on the cross. But the other side of the story is what does God do with murderers? He says you can be forgiven. The very crowd that crucified Jesus, you can be forgiven. Now, what does that mean for us as we close today? If I've joined the Savior, if Jesus can, and God as Father, through the Spirit, can offer repentance and can offer new life to the crowd that crucified Jesus, then who are you going to meet this week that can't be forgiven? Some of you are sitting here and saying, I can't be forgiven. Yeah, you can. This is the incredible good news. I would never tell you this, but the eternal God of the universe said to the crowd that crucified Jesus, your heavenly father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, wants to totally forgive you. And he wants you to live for the ultimate time of refreshing. Some of you young people are looking for a time of refreshing. And I want to tell you something. What I'm teaching you, you'll be able to meet the needs of beggars around the world. But you'll understand that there's going to come a time when there won't be any beggars anymore. Until that day, there's going to be sickness. 
There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. It doesn't mean that we as believers say, I'm not going to do anything about it. What I'm telling you today is we join the apostles. How does the Spirit of God want to work in our lives if you've never responded to Jesus for the very first time? If you've never come to that place, I'm the one that murdered Jesus, and I want to open myself up and trust that Jesus is that ultimate prophet, much more than the prophet. He is God's pice, God's child, God's precious child. And you say, well, Dave, why do you want me to trust him? Because Peter said, this Jesus that you crucified has been raised from the dead. Jesus is offering you the truth. Let his Holy Spirit speak to you. Let him refresh you 